Well, good morning, church family. It's great to see you today. Have you, have you ever met someone who has started a theological seminary? Isn't that interesting? Um, well, if you haven't, you have a great opportunity today because I'm just uh, thrilled to be able to introduce to you uh, Dr. Dr. Nicholas Piotrowski. Uh, Nicholas is the president and the founder of Indianapolis Theological Seminary. And uh, I'm so excited to be able to have him come and, and share with us today. You know, Nicholas received his PhD from Wheaton College back in 2013. And then two years later, he founded ITS uh, in, in 2015. And he founded ITS for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is because there was really no Bible-based seminary in central Indiana. Like there's, there wasn't a theological seminary that really taught the scriptures in all of central Indiana. But secondly, he understood that a, a Bible-based seminary is really the key to the future of the church when you think about it. And when you think about it, if, if the church is gonna survive and thrive in the future, in the next five to 10 to 20 years, if the church is gonna survive and thrive, then we need to be preparing church leaders and pastors right now. And so God led him to start ITS. And uh, I'm sure he'll, he'll say something about this, but ITS had their very first graduate uh, back in this coming or this past May, right? So can we just give God a round of applause for, for that um, huge accomplishment? And so Nicholas has really given himself to that vision of preparing the next generation of pastors and church leaders uh, for the health and the strength of, of the Christian church uh, right here in central Indiana. And so Nicholas is married to his wife, Cheryl. Uh, they have two boys, uh, Andreas and Silas, and they attend Castleton Community Church up on the north side. And um, we're going to watch a video, but would you guys give him a warm round of applause as he comes and makes his way up here? Well, Indianapolis, uh, most people don't realize that right now it's about the 12th largest city in the United States. So we have growth really in every sector from technology uh, to sports to hospitality industry. Uh, Indianapolis is thriving. And along with that, uh, churches are growing in Indianapolis. Churches are being planted in Indianapolis. And yet... We have no seminary here working with local churches for training the next generation of leaders. Therefore, we're sending our best and our brightest away, which is great for wherever they end up. But I would like Indianapolis to be a place where some of them end up, and there's no guarantee that they come back. I had the conviction that ITS should begin here in central Indiana the moment I realized there wasn't a Bible-believing evangelical and reformed seminary in Indianapolis. Thinking missionally about the gospel, it's not just a hypothetical idea of how, does, how might this work in your context. It turns the city into sort of a learning lab where you try things, you fail, you retool, and you do it again. That, that's all afforded by the, uh, the reality of being local together in person with each other. I think the role of the Indianapolis Theological Center in the city of Indianapolis is to strengthen our city by training young men and women for various ways in which they can serve the Lord in our city. 
Right now, all of our courses are in the evening or on weekends so that students don't have to stop what they're doing in their local churches, don't have to stop what they're doing in their jobs, don't have to put their families on hold, but can also fit this education into what they're already doing. And Lord willing, the education will also already pay off an application in the things they're already doing in local churches and their jobs and their families. We want our students learning how to pastor, not just how to have right answers. I think a lot of seminaries unintentionally draw their students out of their local churches. ITS is intentionally set up to push students back into their local churches through internships. We want our scholarship to translate into local church ministry so that our students are taking what they've learned and they're then pouring into the people at their local churches in discipleship. The, the role of Indianapolis Theological Seminary is going to be to largely change the city of Indianapolis for the good of Indianapolis and for the glory of God. Well, good morning. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you for uh, the opportunity to share about ITS by showing that video. Um, you know, I met your pastor, Scott Luck, four years ago, uh, three years, at least three years ago. Maybe it was four. And I've enjoyed getting to know him, and, and I praise God. I literally praise God. I'm thrilled uh, by the gospel witness coming from this church in this area. I've also had the joy of getting to know Ariel and Luke and Chris and some others over the years, and, and I'm thrilled about what God is doing in this part of central Indiana through Stones Crossing. And I'm equally joyful that I now get to preach here at Stone's Crossing. Uh, it is always my joy to open up the word of God with the people of God. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Mark chapter 4. Uh, if you want to use the Bible that's provided under the chair in front of you, that's on page 839, 839, Mark chapter 4. Uh, you want to turn there because nearly everything I have to say will come right out of Mark chapter 4. And so you will be helped if you have that open in front of you. And I'll start with a confession. Sometimes I lack faith. I know that may sound strange for a seminary president to say right out of the chute, but uh, something you just said, Scott, about what will the church be like in 10 or 20 years from now uh, sometimes I get overwhelmed by the cultural trends and the pressures bearing down on the church, and I wonder if the kingdom of God can survive. Sometimes I lack faith, and I wonder if other people feel the same way as well. Because the kingdom is built on the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it seems, it doesn't seem, it's actually very clear to me, that in our time, our culture has brought the gospel under attack. Person and institution subvert the gospel. Art ignores the gospel. Schools marginalize the gospel. Forms of media combat the gospel. Hollywood mocks the gospel. Big tech would like to silence the gospel. And all this serves to bias a growing generation away from the gospel. And surely we all know people who have never heard the gospel or do not understand the gospel. To say nothing of churches in Hindu, Muslim, and Buddhist cultures. But in general, 
The larger secular humanist culture here is pressing in on the church, and I wonder sometimes if it can survive. When I think about how increasingly small we seem to be in the rapidly surging tides of our culture, I lack faith. And I wonder if other people feel the same way. In fact, I think they do. Yet, despite my faith, indeed, because of my lack of faith, I praise God for this passage here today. Mark chapter 4 will challenge us in our faith and bolster our faith as we look at what Jesus says and what he has done this morning. The aim of Mark 4, we're going to start reading in verse 30 uh, through the end of the chapter. And the aim is to build our faith. And it does so by asking two questions. Jesus asks a question about us. And we are to ask a particular question about Jesus. Jesus will ask us a question. And we in turn are to ask a question about Jesus. So I'm going to start reading in Mark 4 beginning in verse 30 through the end of the chapter. Please join with me. And Jesus said, Well, what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which, when sown on the ground, it is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. And yet, when it is grown up, it becomes the largest of all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make their nest in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they went to him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Amen. Thus far the reading of God's word. As I mentioned, we'll travel through this passage by observing two questions. Jesus asks us a question by asking his disciples. You see that there in verse 40? He says, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Well, what, what might they be afraid of? And in what should they put their faith? We'll think about that this morning. And then the second question is in verse 41. The disciples ask, who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey, them, obey him. Who is this Jesus? That the wind and the sea obey him. What does his control over nature mean about him? And how should we respond to him? So we'll consider these two questions in turn. For now, let's see what led to this question. 
What led to this question? What caused them to ask this question in the first place? Jesus is telling parables, and the most recent one he told is that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. Now, you probably don't know much about mustard seeds. I certainly don't. Everything we need to know about mustard seeds is right there in Jesus' parable. It's small. It's very small. It's the smallest thing you can think of. But Jesus says that when it's planted, it grows up to become the biggest tree. And that's what the kingdom of God is like. And I can imagine the people on the hills of Galilee listening to Jesus say the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed and nodding up and down. Yes, we feel very small in the context of Roman, the Roman Empire with their military and their economics and their roads and the government and so forth. Yeah, we feel very small. But Jesus makes it clear that he's the king of this kingdom. And so the disciples are probably swallowing really hard right this moment because they're saying to themselves, yeah, the kingdom is small. I mean, it's you and us. <laughs> it's, it's one traveling rabbi and 12 disciples. But then when Jesus announces, but it's going to be bigger than all the trees, the implication is clear. We will be bigger than Rome. And this is why the disciples are swallowing hard. You think, Jesus, your movement with us will be bigger than Rome? I mean, in size and expanse and power and influence? That's what Jesus is saying. Make no mistake about it. In his day, that would have been the comparison. The kingdom of God will be bigger than Rome, the Roman Empire. So it's with that ringing in their ears, they then get into a boat, and this windstorm comes up, and uh, over the, the, the water's already breaking over the sides of the boat, and it's about to go down. And you should, you should think here about first century boating context for what we know about them. Right? There is no Coast Guard. There is no bilge pump. There's no SOS that they can send out. It was, fishing was a very dangerous occupation at that time. If that boat went down, this is not an exaggeration when they say, do you not care that we are perishing? Happened all the time that boats would go down and people would perish. And you have to wonder, what, what do the disciples want from Jesus when they ask him, don't you care that we're perishing? I mean, they want him to get up and bail water with him, them? or pray for them, or at least show some kind of concern for their lives? Well, judging by their reaction, they don't expect him to simply speak and calm the storm. Do you see that there in verse 40, 41? When he speaks and the storm is stilled, they are filled with great fear. Jesus asks them, why are you afraid during the storm? Why do you have fear? But then after he calms the storm, their fear goes up. They go from fear to great fear. You'd think it would be the other way around. You would think, whew, Jesus just saved our lives. Now's the time to relax. Now maybe we can go take a nap on the cushion. Instead, their fear goes up after the storm. Why is this? Well, the key is back in the parable. The key is back in the parable. Again, we don't know much about mustard seeds except that they're small. But that's the point. When it grows up, it becomes the biggest. And, and it puts out its branches, he says, and birds from all over come and make their nests in the shade of the tree. This image of a tree 
where birds come and make their nests, different kinds of birds come and make their nests in the tree is an image taken from the Old Testament. It's actually quite common that various kingdoms are described as trees, and so therefore the birds that live in the tree are the peoples of the earth. The peoples of the earth. So when Jesus says not only will it be big, but that birds will come make their nests in the tree, uh, the shade of the tree, what he's saying is all kinds of people from all over the, the world, every tongue, tribe, and people and nation, as we read later in the New Testament, will come and make their home in the shade of the tree. In other words, look, I know the kingdom is small now. It's me and 12 followers, but it will not remain this small ragtag crew of Galileans that can barely even fit into a boat, can't control a boat in a storm. But it will become the biggest, even bigger than Rome for its day. No wonder it's compared to the mustard seed, the smallest thing he and his followers can think of. But there's one more thing I want to show you in verse 32. Again, this language of planting a tree and birds coming making nests in its shade also comes from Psalm 104. 104 verse 12. Now the significance here is that Psalm 104 is a praise to God for how effortlessly and for his own joy he made everything. So trees are but one of the things that God for his own glory made in his sovereignty. That's what Psalm 104 is about. How easy it was for God to make the universe out of nothing and to produce all kinds of things, one of which is trees. That God, it's a hymn to God for his providence over creation. That he creates everything effortlessly and he stain, sustains things for his good pleasure and by his mere will. And that's why Jesus is quoting it. He's saying that just as surely as God created everything and controls it by his sovereign sustaining power, that's how confident I am that the mustard seed will grow from small to great. We have the creator God behind us as sure as the sun comes up in the morning making sure that the kingdom will grow to this great unimaginable size. And it's with that ringing in their ears, that great confidence in the providence of God over the kingdom of God, with that ringing in their ears, that they get into the boat in verse 35. Do you see that in verse 35? It says, on that day. And so it's as the storm hits, the disciples are scared that they might perish. But if they had learned the parable, they would know that they will not die yet. Because they are the seed with which God has big plans. As big as his initial, initial creational plans, they were the mustard seed. And the kingdom is not going anywhere if they die on that day. But maybe only Jesus understood the parable and that's why he's asleep on the cushion and the rest are frantic. Jump back into verse 34. There's this interesting transition between the parable and the storm or verse 33, actually, Mark tells us, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them, just as they were able to hear it. He did not speak without a parable. He did not speak without a parable. So put that in the positive. He always only spoke in parables to the crowd. 
but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. So Jesus' normal modus operandi is here come the crowds. I'm going to give them some parables here. And then I'll take my 12 off to the side and explain this is what I meant by that parable. Here come the crowds again, parables again. Take the disciples aside and give them an explanation. And so in verse 35, when you read on that day when evening had come, and then in verse 36, leaving the crowd, what do you expect? You expect that private interpretation. You expect Jesus to now give them uh, further insight into the meaning of the parable. And so that's what the stilling of the storm is. The stilling of the storm for these disciples is an in-life, live, personal, hands-on explanation of the meaning of the parable. Now, if it were my class at ITS, we would have books and a whiteboard, and I would just do my best to put it in words. But Jesus throws them into a life-harrowing situation because in the situation, in seeing how Jesus acts and how God providentially preserves his kingdom, even when it's teensy tiny and threatened by death, will do what? Press into them with confidence what Jesus said in the parable. That I know we're small. You think I don't know we're small? We're small. We're smaller than a mustard seed. But we will be big. Because God has huge creational plans for us that we have to spread out bigger and further than Rome so that all the nations can come live in the kingdom of God. It all starts right here in this boat, boys. The life situation presses that into them. And it should do the same for us. This story of Jesus speaking and calming the storm is commonly allegorized. And what that means is, sometimes it's taught as though it's a personal lesson for each individual. That you have storms in your life, and you have storms in your life, and you have storms, and you have storms. And everybody has their own personal storms. You know, losing your job, or, or, or weight loss, or some health issue. All kinds of personal storms. And if you simply have enough faith, Jesus will calm the storms of your life. I think this is teaching the exact opposite, actually. That this is not about individual problems, but about what? The kingdom of God. This thing that's going to be so big that all the nations of the earth will come and find home in it. All the birds of the air will make their nest. It's not about individuals. It's about the kingdom of God. And it's not about God getting you out of your problems. To the contrary. God is going to throw you into problems. It's Jesus who gets in the boat. It's God who brings the storm so that he can then act in a way that demonstrates his power over the whole creation. Now, I want to be clear. God cares about your individual personal problems. He he truly does. And there's a lot in the scriptures, in the Psalms, and in the book of Hebrews, and other places that talk about how Uh, God has that kind of individual, personal, shepherding care for all of his sheep. Make no doubt about it. That's just not what this passage is about. 
This passage is an opportunity for God to take us and, and lift our eyes up out of our personal problems to look at the larger scope, to look at the larger plan, to actually look across history and across time and ask yourself, what is God doing in the world? And then reconsider your own problems as a small participant in God's larger creational providential care for all time and space. This text, in other words, is about the kingdom, and so the stilling of the storm is explaining that parable. They are afraid that they themselves are going to die, but Jesus rebukes them and says, don't you have faith about the mustard seed that I just told you about? I mean, what else are they supposed to have faith in? When Jesus asks the question in verse 40, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? What are they supposed to have faith in? It's, it's not that Jesus will calm the storm. They'd never seen him do that. This is brand new for them. Jesus never promised that, hey, when we get in a boat and the storm comes, I'll, I'll, I'll just use some messianic miracle working power and take care of it. He never said anything like that. And again, judging by their response, their fear goes up. They had no idea that he could even do that or that he would. So what is Jesus? what does Jesus expect them to have had faith in? The parable that he just told. And so that is the question Jesus is asking us today. He's certainly asking me. I hope he's asking you. Where is your faith in what I have planned and what God has providentially, sovereignly guided for 2,000 years already and counting? Don't you see the end from the beginning? A little wind, a subversive culture here, canceling over there. This stuff doesn't threaten Jesus. He says, I am building my kingdom. I am building my kingdom. Just yesterday, I met a missionary to northern India. He was from southern India. And apparently southern India, learned this yesterday, and northern India are so different that it's like, it's like going to a whole other another country, another world. He knew nothing about northern India growing up in southern India. And when he got up there to serve, he wanted to plant churches. It was only then that he discovered that for the last hundred years, that area was known as the graveyard of missionaries. That was the nickname, the graveyard of missionaries. Literally hundreds of missionaries over the last 200 years have gone there and died and seen no converts. So he discovers that when he gets up there. Oh, is that the reputation for the area? 50 million unreached people in the, in the, in the region that he was, he was assigned. Today, he's the leader of a huge Bible college that puts out 150 graduates a year and 10 elementary through uh, high schools, 10, 10 K to 12 schools in that region and literally hundreds of churches have been planted. Small. From small comes great. From death comes life. From defeat comes victory. And you know, this is a theme throughout the book of Mark, isn't it? That from small comes great. From defeat comes victory. From death comes life. And it climaxes where? The climax is at the cross. There's no place where the gospel, where the kingdom looks smaller and more threatened than when Jesus is being killed. His 12 disciples, 
not Judas and Peter only, all of them abandoned Jesus. And he's left alone on the cross and he dies. In that moment, it is clear that the mustard seed is not only small, but ground down into dust and destroyed altogether. It never looked bleaker. But on the third day, God raises Jesus back to life. He regathers 11 of his disciples and he tells them, go now into all the nations and teach them whatsoever I've commanded you and lo and behold, I'm with you to the end of the age. And from that day, slowly but surely, the kingdom has been progressing and more and more birds have been coming to make their nest in the tree of the kingdom. And you are one of them. Presumably, by looking at this room, most of you, maybe all of you, are Gentiles. Alienated, far away from the covenant of uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Lost and perishing in the world. Your ancestors probably worshipped the rocks in the river, the spirits in the woods, and feared all kinds of uh, demons and things like that, and made sacrifices to uh, the, the gods of nature and so forth. That's what my ancestors were like. But with the gospel progressed, came to our people, convinced us of the error of our ways, the Spirit opened our eyes and grew faith in our hearts. And here we are today, singing songs about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The kingdom has progressed this far. And so this parable and this story are a challenge to us to lift up our eyes to what God is doing across all creation and to put our trust in his sovereign care for the church and maybe break out of focusing on our individual problems as real as important as they are to us and to God and to look at what God is doing on this cosmic level and to have the kind of confidence that Jesus had, come what may. God is sovereignly enthroned over his kingdom and over his creation and growing it despite windstorms, subversive cultural liturgies, violent oppressors. Those are real problems, but they are not problems enough for the sovereign creator and sustainer of the kingdom of God that is spreading for his glory and ultimately to bring the church all together into the new creation. Before we press on to the second question, before we press on to the second question, I'll make a couple points of application. If Jesus asks us this question, why are you so afraid? Have you no faith? Didn't I tell you you'd be small? Didn't I tell you we'd be threatened? Aren't you confident like I am that the sovereign Lord will bring us through these things? When he asks us these questions, the first point of application is that we must trust in God's sovereign upbuilding and maintaining of the kingdom. Again, it's easy to feel small. It's easy to feel small when we see the things going on around us. But Jesus is not threatened by smallness. In fact, that's where he thrives. He loves to bring life out of death, victory out of defeat. And number two, I think this is basic, we should evangelize. We should be eager to open up our mouths and tell people the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, and that they can be saved through his atoning work, 
and they could be forgiven of their sins and reconciled to the Creator and given the Holy Spirit and brought into communion with God and with each other. We should be eager to tell people this because Jesus is guaranteeing success. He's guaranteeing success. Not on every occasion, but put it all together, through the march through time, there has been great success. And why should that abate now? We live in a time when we are encouraged to keep quiet about our faith. And I just wonder why. Who's encouraging us to keep quiet? Again, the media and big tech or whatever these things that grab all the headlines. Your neighbors, on the other hand, they're dying. They're dying for meaning and they're dying, literally dying. And when people come to faith, the first person they thank is the Lord Jesus Christ. The second person they thank is the person who shared the gospel with them. And so your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members, they want the gospel. Whether they realize it or not, on a deep level, searching for meaning and life, they want it and they need it. And when they hear the truth of it, and they become convinced of it, and they follow Jesus, they're deeply grateful. And so why would we be silent? Jesus is telling us you will be successful, and our neighbors are dying to hear it. And so we must open our mouths and tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ. Now for our second question. We've considered the first question. Why are we afraid? And what we might be afraid of now. The quest, second question is in verse 41. Who then is this? That even the wind and the sea obey him. And why are they filled with great fear? Whereas before when their lives were threatened, they were merely filled with fear. Now great fear. Well, surely these events remind us of another story. Do they remind you of another story? Let's think about it. You got a group of sailors on a boat. The wind comes, threatens them. They think they're going to die. One of them is asleep on the cushion. He stands up. Some words are said. A miracle happens that calms the storm. Everyone knows they're now safe and their fear rises as opposed to going down. Do you know that story? My 10-year-old son, Andreas, could tell you right away. This is Jonah. This is the, this is, that's the basic outline of the Jonah story. And this is why the disciples are afraid at this moment. They realize in an instant that they are the new characters in God's redemptive activities, just like in the Jonah story. Only there's a, there's a key difference. In the Jonah story, God was somewhere. Nobody knew where God was. God, if he existed, or, or if he was a rival to the gods that the sailors would have believed in, he's transcendent. He is beyond creation, right? And so when Jonah is woken up and the sailors say um, basically the same thing, do you not care that we're, we're going to perish? Rise and pray to your God. Jonah says, I serve the God who created the heavens and the earth. Oh, no, no, he says, he says I serve the God who created the the sea and the dry land. That's what he says. The sea and the dry land. Now to the sailors, they would have recognized that right away to say, you're the guilty party. You just confessed that your God is in control of the sea. And here we are on the sea. So your God must be the one causing all of this. And so when they throw Jonah into the sea, they see something they've never seen before in their lives. And that is God actually doing something. They prayed to false gods who never respond to their prayers or to their actions. Now, God has drawn near to them 
and they're afraid. And this is because they've never seen the presence of God or experienced the presence of God. Whereas the disciples in this moment, when they connect those dots, realize that God is not transcendent, controlling nature, the sea and the dry land from a distance, but he is with us in the boat. He is with us in the boat. And suddenly this man, whom we've been walking and talking with and kind of half paying attention to his parables, who understands these things anyway, right, is actually God himself come to us in the flesh, in our very condition, the condition of fear, lack of faith, threatened by death. He is right up here with us in the boat. They realize in an instant that Jesus is God himself coming to plant that mustard seed and to water it and to tend it and to grow it and to guarantee its success. And from the very beginning of the church, the early church fathers recognized that the parallel here with the church is that the church is the boat. You understand? And because Jesus is resurrected and he's still alive and he's with us by his spirit, whatever boat we're in and whatever trouble the kingdom of God faces, Jesus is with us in the boat. Jesus is with us in the battle. Jesus is with us in the times when we're threatened or scared or made to feel small by, by whether it's genuine persecution and oppression, which the church has seen and continues to see around the world today, or whether it's this cultural sort of uh, eroding underneath of us. Either way, Jesus is with us, and that should cause us to fear and to trust and to evangelize, to bring more people into the boat, which is, ironically, the safest place on the sea. <laughs> the safest place on the sea at that moment was in the boat because Jesus, the creator God, was there too with these guarantees that he would grow the kingdom. And so I suppose we should conclude where we began. It's easy to see that the kingdom of God is constantly under siege. And I'm reminded, and I hope you are too, that though the church seems small, and although it is surely battered about, it has grown, and it will continue to grow until every single person who the Father calls comes and makes his or her home in the kingdom. Until every bird the Father has ordained comes and makes its nest in the tree. It cannot be cut down. It cannot be burned down. It cannot be uprooted and supplanted until God's sovereign purposes with the church are done. And so the safest place to be is in the presence of the Lord Jesus, in the presence of the church, awaiting that great consummation. And so we should trust and we should be bold until that great day. Let me pray for us. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation. 
by water and the word. From heaven he came and sought her to be his precious bride. And for her life, he died. And he rose again. And so, Lord Jesus, we give you thanks. We give you praise that you are the excellent teacher who has shown your disciples and now shows us the truth and the power and the confidence that we can have in the progress of your kingdom. And we give you thanks that even though it is common that even today we might feel small, we might feel threatened, that you have sovereignly everything under control. And the storms will continue, the threats will continue, but you are with us. And for that we give you praise, we give you thanks, and we build our confidence on your sovereign word. And so in your name we pray and give thanks. Amen and amen.